Book One, Chapter One of the New Republic, or Culture, Faith, and Philosophy in an English Country House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by phone. The New Republic, or Culture, Faith, and Philosophy in an English Country House by William Hurl Mallock. Book One, Chapter One towards the close of last july when the london season was fast dying of the dust Arthur lawrence had invited what the morning post called a select circle of friends to spend a quiet sunday with him at his cool villa by the sea this singular retreat was the work of a very singular man Arthur lawrence's uncle who had squandered on it an immense fortune and had designed it as far as possible to embody his own tastes and character he was a member of a tory family of some note and had near relations in both houses of parliament but he was himself possessed of a deep though quiet antipathy to the two things generally most cherished by those of his time and order the ideas of christianity and feudalism and he studiously kept himself clear of all public life pride of birth indeed he had in no small measure but it was the pride of a roman of the empire rather than of an englishman a pride which instead of connecting him with prince or people made him shun the one as a caesar and forget the other as slaves all his pleasures were those of a lettered voluptuary who would as he himself said have been more in place under augustus or the antonines and modern existence under most of its aspects he affected to regard as barbarous next to a bishop the thing he most disliked was a courtier next to a courtier a fox-hunting country gentleman but nothing in his life perhaps was so characteristic of him as his leaving of it during his last hours he was soothed by a pretty and somewhat educated housemaid whom he called phyllis and whom he made sit by his bedside and read aloud to him gibbon's two chapters on christianity phyllis had just come to the celebrated excerpt from tertullian in which that father contemplates the future torments of the unbelievers when the parish clergyman who had been sent for by mr lawrence's widowed sister-in-law arrived to offer his services how shall i admire these were the words that read in a low sweet tone first greeted his ears when he was shown softly into the sick-chamber how shall i admire how laugh how rejoice how exult when i behold so many proud monarchs so many fancied gods groaning in the lowest abyss of darkness so many magistrates who persecuted the name of the lord liquefying in a fiercer fire than ever they kindled against the christians the clergyman was at first much reassured at hearing words so edifying but when he turned to old mr lawrence he was dismayed to see on his pale face no signs of awe but only a faint smile full of sarcastic humour he therefore glanced at the book that was lying on the girl's lap and discovered to his horror the work of the infidel historian he was at first struck dumb but soon recovering himself began to say something suitable at once to his own profession and to the sick man's needs mr lawrence answered him with the greatest courtesy 
but with many thanks declined any assistance from him, saying wistfully that he knew he had not long to live, and that his one wish was that he could open his veins in a bath, and so faith gently into death. And then, he added, my soul, if I have one, might perhaps be with Petronius and with Seneca, and yet sleep would, I think, be better than even their company. The poor clergyman bade a hasty adieu, and Phyllis resumed her reading. Mr. Lawrence listened to every word. The smile returned to his lips that had for a moment left them, and was still upon them when, half an hour afterwards, he died, so quietly that Phyllis did not perceive it, but continued her reading for some time to ears that could hear nothing. All his property he left to his nephew Otho, including his splendid villa, which was indeed, as it was meant to be, a type of its builder. It was a house of pillars, porticos, and statues, designed ambitiously in what was meant to be a classical style, and though its splendours might not be all perhaps in the best taste, nor even of the most strictly Roman pattern, there was yet an air about its meretricious stateliness by which the days of the empire were at once suggested to one, a magnificence that would at any rate have pleased Trimalcio, though it might have scandalised Horace. Otho Lawrence inherited with his uncle's house something of the tastes and feelings of which it was the embodiment. But, though an epicure by training and by temper, he had been open to other influences as well. At one time of his life he had, as it is expressed by some, experienced religion, and not religion only, but thought and speculation also. Indeed, ever since he was twenty-four he had been troubled by a painful sense that he ought to have some mission in life. The only difficulty was that he could find none that would suit him. He had considerable natural powers, and was in many ways a remarkable man. But, unhappily, one of those who are remarkable because they do not become famous, not because they do. He was one of those of whom it is said, till they are thirty, that they will do something, till they are thirty-five, that they might do something if they chose, and after that, that they might have done anything if they had chosen. Lawrence was as yet only three years gone in the second stage, but such of his friends as were ambitious for him feared that three years more would find him landed in the third. He, too, was beginning to share this fear, and, not being humble enough to despair of himself, was by this time taking to despair of his century. He was thus hardly a happy man, but, like many unhappy men, he was capable of keen enjoyments. Chief amongst these was society in certain forms, especially a party in his own house, such as that which he had now assembled there. To this one, in particular, he looked forward with more than usual pleasure, partly because of the peculiar elements which he had contrived to combine in it, but chiefly because amongst them was to be his friend Robert Leslie, who had been living abroad, and whom he had not seen for two years. Lawrence's aunt, Lady Grace, helped to receive the guest, who by dinner-time on Saturday evening had all arrived. Robert Leslie was the last. The dressing-bell had just done ringing as he drove up to the door, and the others had already gone upstairs, 
but he found Lawrence in the library, sitting with his head on his hand and a pile of menu cards on the desk before him. The two friends met with much warmth and then examined each other's faces to see if either had changed. "'You told me you had been ill,' said Lawrence, having again looked at Leslie, "'and I am afraid you don't seem quite well yet.' "'You forget,' said Leslie, whose laugh was a little hollow, "'that I was on the sea six hours ago, "'and as you know, I am a wretched sailor. "'But the worst of human maladies are the most transient also. "'Love that is half-despairing, and seasickness that is quite so.' "'I congratulate you,' said Lawrence, again examining his friend's face, "'on your true cynical manner.' I often thought we might have masters in cynicism, just as we have masters in singing. Perhaps I shall be able to learn the art from you. Oh, said Leslie, the theory is simple enough. Find out, by a little suffering, what are the things you hold most sacred and most firmly believe in, and, whenever an occasion offers, deny your faith. A cynic is a kind of inverted confessor, perpetually making enemies for the sake of what he knows to be false ah said lawrence but i don't want theory i know what is sacred just as well as you and when i am beast enough to be quite out of tune with it i have the good sense to call it a phantom but i don't do with this sufficient energy it is skill in cynical practice i want a lesson in the pungent manner the bitter tone then please not to take your lessons from me said leslie imitation may be the sincerest flattery but it is of all the most irritating and a cynic as you are good enough to call me feels this especially for a cynic is the one preacher remember that never wants to make converts his aim is to outrage not to convince to create enemies not to conquer them the peculiar charm that his creed has for him is his own peculiarity in holding it. He is an acid that can only fizz with an alkali, and he therefore hates in others what he most admires in himself. So if you hear me say a bitter thing, please be good enough to brim over it immediately with the milk of human kindness. If I say anything disrespectful about friendship, please be good enough to look hurt. And if I happen to say, what is the chief part of the cynic's stock in trade, that no woman was ever sincere or faithful, I trust you have some lady amongst your visitors who will look at me with mournful eyes and say to me, Oh, if you did but know. Well, said Lawrence, perhaps I have, but talking of what people are to say, I have something here about which I want you to help me. You see these cards, they are all double. Now that second half is for something quite new and of my own invention. The cook has written his part already, so you need not look so alarmed, but he has only provided for the tongue as a tasting instrument. I'm going to provide for it as a talking one. In fact, I'm going to have a menu for the conversation, and to this I shall make everyone strictly adhere for it has always seemed absurd to me to be so careful about what we put into our mouths and to leave chance to arrange what comes out of them 
to be so particular as to the order of what we eat and to have no order at all in what we talk about this is the case especially in parties like the present where most of the people know each other only a little and if left to themselves would never touch on the topics that would make them best acquainted and bring out their several personal flavours that is what i like to see conversation doing i ought to have written these menus before but i have been busy all day and besides i wanted you to help me i was just beginning without you when you arrived as i could wait no longer but i have put down nothing yet indeed i could not fix upon the first topic that is to correspond with the soup the first vernal breath of discussion that is to open the buds of the shy and strange souls so come now what shall we begin with what we want is something that any one can talk easily about whether he knows anything of it or not something too that may be treated in any way either with laughter feeling or even a little touch of temper love suggested leslie that is too strong to begin with said lawrence and too real besides introduced in that way it would be i think rather common and vulgar no the only thing that suggested itself to me was religion nothing could be better in some ways said leslie but might not that too be rather strong meat for some i apprehend like bottom that the ladies might be afeard of the lion i should suggest rather the question are you high church or low church there is something in that which at once disarms reverence and may also just titillate the interests the temper or the sense of humour quick he said taking one of the cards and let us begin to write stop said lawrence not so fast let me beg of you instead of religion or anything connected with it we will have what is the aim of life is not this the thing of things to suit us about what do we know less or talk more there is a sphinx in each of our souls that is always asking us this riddle and when we are lazy or disappointed we all of us lounge up to her and make languid guesses so about this we shall all of us have plenty to say and can say it in any way we'd like flippant serious or sentimental think too how many avenues of thought and feeling it opens up evidently the aim of life is the thing to begin with leslie assented and before many minutes they had made the menu complete the aim of life was to be followed by town and country which was designed to introduce a discussion as to where the aim of life was to be best attained after this by an easy transition came society next by way of entrees art and literature love and money riches and civilization then the present as something solid and satisfying and lastly a light superfluity to dally with brightly coloured and unsubstantial with the entremets came the future and who is here said leslie as they were ending their labours to enjoy this feast of reason i will tell you said lawrence in the first place there is lady ambrose a woman of a very old but poor family who has married a modern m p with more than a million of money 
she is very particular about knowing the right people and has lovely large grey eyes then there is miss merton a roman catholic young lady the daughter of old sir ascot merton the horse-racing evangelical i knew her well five years ago but had not seen her since her conversion till to-day then we have dr jenkinson the great broad-church divine who thinks that christianity is not dead but changed by himself and his followers in the twinkling of an eye i met dr jenkinson said leslie just before i went abroad at a great dinner given by baron isaacs in honour of his horse having won the derby well and who else is there two celebrated members of the royal society said lawrence no less persons than-but good gracious it is time we were upstairs dressing come along directly and i will explain the other people to you before dinner End of book one, chapter one.